Hi, and welcome to Bread. Our current series is on the book of Genesis. It's uh, going back to the start, not because that's where we're heading, but it is where we've come from, spiritually and cosmically, if not historically. The Bible is clear. We've left Eden. We're not going back. Instead, we're heading for heaven, which is not some fluffy, cloud, harp plain, white sheet-wearing place up in the sky. It's a glorious city of wonder and abundance and redemption here on earth and forever into eternity. Heaven is not Eden, but it does share many of its defining characteristics. So we're going back to the start, not to return, but to see where we've come from so that we might know better where we're going and how to get there. Enjoy. Amen. Would you like to take a seat? That, I think, was Joe's first time leading worship here. Wasn't that amazing? He's got his special shirt on, and it was just great. Thank you, Joe. Um, so, uh, welcome, everyone. It's great to have you with us. Um, for those of you who have been around for the last couple of weeks, we started a series on Genesis, Back to the Start, and this is the third talk in uh, that series. And in a minute, I'm going to read a description of God creating us from uh, Genesis 1 and the beginning of 2. Um, and uh, I'll get to that in a minute. But firstly, I want to... Uh, sorry, I was suddenly remembering something I hadn't done, which was parking. Parking was beautiful. Well done on parking. Um, Stan oversaw parking. Is Stan here? He's, not, he's probably still parking, people. <laughs> Um, but uh, parking is um, beautiful. Thank you for everyone who parked well. We'll continue to park well. Benjamin's got COVID, so um, he couldn't be with us. I know, but he's doing okay. Anyway, he will be back to park us. Um, <laughs> right, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, Genesis. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to read uh, the um, account of how God created human beings. But firstly, I want to describe... Uh, just briefly, a message that many of us will have explicitly or possibly implicitly received about what God thinks of humankind in general. The picture painted, this is a bit of a caricature, but the picture painted is a bit like this. God made something good, but Adam and Eve messed it all up. So it's all Adam and Eve's fault. But by extension, it's kind of our fault too. And we continue to mess things up and God continues to be disappointed in us. Now, he has sent Jesus as a rescue plan, but only because he kind of had to. And anyway, none of us actually follow Jesus particularly well, so we're just carrying on, really, being a bit of a disappointment. And actually, we're sort of set up to be a disappointment over and over again. It was a lose-lose deal from the start. In this picture, God wants our devotion all the while knowing that we can't really give it to him. So it leaves people with quite a depressing picture of life, and they can feel that they only have really two options. Option one is that we sort of resign ourselves to this, but at least we've got heaven off in the future when everything will be okay, but we've just got to get through this slightly disappointing, depressing life. Or we try our hardest to prove that we are not a disappointment, but as I said, it's a losing battle. A bit depressing, isn't it? Now, of course, when we get on to Adam and Eve in 
this series, we will see just how fundamental a problem, the problem of their sin is. Let us never minimize the devastating seriousness of it. Just this morning, you may have read in the news, a, a young man live streamed his trip 200 miles to a predominantly black community in Buffalo where he shot dead 10 people in the supermarket in cold blood. Sin is very serious. And let's just now, shall we, spend a moment in prayer for all those who've lost lives. Lord, we admit that we are anesthetized to a lot of this. We see it so regularly. We thank you that you never are and that your heart breaks for all loss of life. We pray that you are close to those who are grieving. And we pray for an end to all violence. We pray that you would heal this land. We pray that you would be with our leaders and that you would give them great wisdom and courage to do all that they can to end the violence that so often plagues this country and others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining in that. Let us never sugarcoat the seriousness of sin. It is something that's devastating. It's evil. It infects every single one of us. It's like a virus that we all have, unfortunately. And we will get onto it in this series. That will be exciting, won't it? But for now, let's just take a pause because if we skip straight ahead to the consequences of the problem and the treatment of the problem without fully appreciating what the problem actually is, what life was like before the problem, we'll run the risk of actually skewing our whole understanding of what God is like and what we're like and what humanity is like. So today, I want to answer the question. What does the story of Genesis tell us about what God is really like, and what does it tell us about what he actually thinks of us? So this is concluding the first uh, creation account in Genesis. This is chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he was made, and he said that it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing and had a nice big rest. Then God blessed the seventh day. That's not in there. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work 
of creating that he had done. So, question number one, what is God actually really like? Now, as you will remember, if you were here from last week, the Hebrew tradition that underpins this writing of this part of Genesis originated from a time of actual great distress for the Hebrew people. They'd gone through the Exodus, out through Egypt, been delivered into the Promised Land. They'd enjoyed the prosperity of that land, the construction of the temple, all God's plans seemingly being fulfilled for them, only for the dirty, old, horrible Babylonians to come in to destroy their temple, take them off into captivity, and use them in exile in their own land. So the Israelites are questioning whether God has actually departed from them forever, They are in this foreign, godless place. Is God still with us at all? But worse, in the midst of this, these evil, horrible Babylonians are influencing them, and the neighboring uh, nations are too, with their sort of cultic pagan practices and their beliefs. And even worse, many of the Israelites have sort of assimilated to Babylonian culture. So much so that when the Jewish people are finally allowed to leave Babylon and return to the promised land, a lot of them say, actually, we quite like it in Babylon. We were born here. It's really nice. We're staying with the Babylonian gods and the gods of the Near East. And this is the context in which this creation account of Genesis comes to light. And so it's why, amongst other things, it takes a form of polemic against Near Eastern beliefs. Effectively, it says, well, you guys have told us about your myths and about your gods and about how you think creation happens. Let us tell you about the real God who has spoken to us in our midst, what he is actually like and how he created the world. And so these opening verses paint the true picture of the true God, entirely unlike any Eastern versions. He is involved, he is powerful, and he is gracious. For example, the phrase used throughout the creation story, and here used again in verse 26, let there be, is there by no accident. Let there be. Not I demand, not I command, not there will be, or there must be, but let there be. God's power is never in question, because indeed every time that he says let there be, it happens instantaneously. But this phrase actually tells a lot about the character of God. Let there be is neither oppressive nor impotent. It's neither dictatorial nor, though, is it weak. Let there be. It is gracious power. Consider under 10 girls soccer or football, as it's actually known. Uh, So yesterday, my youngest daughter was uh, in the playoffs against the strongest team in her league. This team has all the best players. They are faster, they are bigger, they are more skillful than anyone else. I don't know quite how it's happened like this, but it has. Now, I don't want to be too rude because all the coaches are volunteers and they're just trying their best. But their coach, he's just very passive. So last time we played this team, they beat us 7-0 because they've got all the best players. This time, we had been coached and we won 3-2. It was glorious. (laughs) Honestly, another dad came up to me and said, this is the best moment of my life. (laughs) The problem is for this team is the coach, who's a very nice guy, he just doesn't give them any direction. He doesn't organize them, he doesn't tell them what to do. 
they're just sort of chaotically running around trying to win the game all by themselves. They're a mess. By contrast, my middle daughter, she plays under 12s. And she was playing against the team so overcoached that no one wants to play against this team anymore. In fact, we were due to play against a different team, but the team who was supposed to be playing the team that we ended up playing said they refused because they don't like the coach that much. So we had to play them because we were nice. And last time we played them, they also beat us. But this time it was 0-0, which was almost better than a win because this team has got a coach who just barks and barks and barks and barks and barks. Last time we played them, there was one girl, they're under, like they're 11-year-olds. There was this one girl who was sort of playing on the right-hand side of defense, so she's right on the touchline where the two coaches are. And this coach is having such a go at her that within 10 minutes, she is just flooding in tears. And she can't do anything. And you see all the players lose all of their um, confidence as they're just being barked at. And I'm supposed to be coaching the other team, but I find myself coaching this girl going, you're doing great. <laughs> I love you, those sorts of things. <laughs> now, his team is very well organized, but there's no joy or creativity. None of the girls actually like playing. In contrast, the creator God of Genesis is both critically involved and yet freely creative. He is close but completely distinct from his creation intimately connected to your life. Everything that's going on with you, guiding and directing it, but never so close as to cover you or suffocate you or rob you of all creativity and freedom. We're in the process of um, letting our 13-year-old daughter be a 13-year-old daughter. It's a process. She goes to the mall without us. I have no idea what goes on there. I just worry. She babysits. She started her own dog walking business by herself. She's 13. Our spiritual advisor, who is a very wise person, said, by the time they get to middle school, you've done all your parenting. It's done. Now you just have to let them go. That, I think, is true, but it is so nerve-wracking. And yet this is what we see of the creator God. Every single detail of creation is by design, but he's not overbearing. He creates, but he allows his creation to then flourish and bear fruit all of its own. He causes it to come into being, but then he just lets it be. So then, what does that say about what he thinks of us? Well, if up to now creation has been good, after he makes you, after he makes humankind, things change. It becomes, verse 31, very good. Perfect, in fact. Excellent in every single way. It is done. It is finished. And the reason for this is because humanity, me, you, and every single other person who has ever lived, is the apex of creation. The word created here is actually very important in the original. It's like a divine word, it can only be attributed to God. It's only ever used in reference to the effortless, totally free, unbounding, sovereign creativity of our God. It's used in the opening verses 
as just a sort of introduction. This is the story of God creating the heavens and the earth. But it's not used again until here, right here at verse 27. And not again in relation to anything other than uh, humanity in the whole of Genesis afterwards. And here in verse 27, it's used not just once, but three times, which is um, a kind of device for emphasis. God created mankind in his image. In his image, God created them. Male and female, he created them. We, mankind, are the point of the whole of creation. That's what the writer wants us to know. And it's a point rammed home by the fact that One, the rest of creation is given to humankind, verse 29. Two, humankind is the only part of creation to whom God directly speaks, verse 28. And three, the only parts of creation up to now that are given uh, any more detail, namely humanity's home, verses 9 to 13, and the sun and moon, which determine uh, humankind's life cycle, verses 14 to 19, are directly related to us. The point is we are the point. It's all about us. But there's more. Verse 26. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea. Now, the word rule over here is often translated as has dominion. It's a Hebrew word, rada. Would you like to say rada with me? No, I didn't, I didn't say say it. I said, would you like to say it with me? No, okay. <laughs> rada has a very specific meaning it always connotes a sense of royal authority. So King Solomon is said to have dominion, rada, over all the kingdoms west of Euphrates and dominion over all the seas. King David, in a long sort of comparison with God, is said to lay his hand, i.e. have dominion over the waters as well. And within the Near Eastern tradition, it was the kings of Mesopotamia and Acadia who had dominion over the whole world, trampling everything under their feet. They were seen like gods themselves. So... Genesis is saying something similar, but also something very different. Whilst in Near Eastern mythology, dominion over the earth was the preserve of gods, Genesis says this is for everyone. And throughout scripture, we see this being repeated. Moses, he's not royalty, but he has dominion over the waters as he parts the Red Sea. Elisha and Elijah are not royalty, but they walk over the Jordan. Elisha cleansed the waters of Jericho. Jesus was not royalty, but he calmed the storms and walked on the waters. And most tellingly, Jesus gives Peter, who is also definitely not royalty, he's like an everyday fisherman, authority to walk on the water himself. You see, what Genesis is saying is that rather than it being the preserve of blue-blooded kings to rule over the world, originally, God made it the preserve of every single one of us. All these scripture references are not just evidence of God's divine supernatural power at work through particular people. Rather, they are showing us what it is like to simply be human. We were intended always to have rada, to have dominion. We were created, you were created to exercise creative cosmic power. Not just social influence, but actual dominion. Because we are all God's kings on earth, his vice regents. Forget Meghan Markle. You are royalty. 
and so am I. But there's more. Verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea. The word for image is tselem. I'm not going to get you to say that, tselem. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? The most common idea is that we are images of God because, unlike all other parts of creation, we are intelligent and we are creative and we are relational, so we image God because we are in some ways a bit like him. You probably would have grown up with something like that. And there is a lot of truth to that, but it doesn't go anywhere near to actually giving um, proper credence to this actual word. Tselem is like a visual, concrete, distinct term. Throughout scripture and in Hebrew and other Near Eastern language, tselem means idol. It usually refers to a pagan statue. In, uh, Dave, in Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has a golden statue of himself at tselem. Tselem is like this sort of physical likeness. So the writer of Genesis is saying that when we see one another, we are actually seeing a little bit about what God looks like. But it is also a lot more than just likeness. If this was simply likeness, then the writer could have used the word for likeness, as he actually does later on in verse 26, demo, which means likeness or appearance. He didn't use the word likeness, he used the word selem, and there is a point to this. He doesn't use uh, likeness, he uses selem three times for emphasis, because to liken humanity to a statue or god is either dangerously careless or deliberately profound, it's deliberately profound. In the same way that Genesis stands against these Near Eastern mythologies about how the world was created and what God is like, it also stands against these Near Eastern ideas of what idols are. Consider the temple. As I said, the nadir of the kind of Hebrew experience was the destruction of their temple, and then they had to look at these Babylonian temples. And these Babylonian temples were actually set up in similar ways. They would be kind of reflective of the whole cosmos. So there would be many different kind of antechambers, and in each chamber there would be um, reference to one particular god. So if you went into the sun god chamber, the whole ceiling would be kind of constructed like the sun, and in the middle there would be an idol. I have a visual aid. Don't worry, it's not a stool. So imagine you are in the antechamber of a Babylonian temple. And in there is... an idol. Oh. I tried to get an um, Oscar, but I couldn't find one, so we've got Barbie. Here is the idol. Now, an idol weren't just sort of icons. They were believed to actually be the gods themselves. They were sort of an extension of that god. And they weren't just made, they weren't just crafted from wood or uh, metal or plastic. Uh, they were birthed. So would you like to join me in a birthing ceremony of our idol Barbie? Yes, you would. Birth, 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 there, she's birthed. That was a birthing ceremony for the idol Barbie. 
And the people who made her would ritually cut off their hands. Not, not literally, ritually uh, cut off their hands as if to say, I didn't make this thing. This is not created by human hands because it's a god. And the idols would be decked out in finery, some silver boots. a psychedelic dress. <laughs> I've never done this before. I was actually practicing. Okay. 60s kind of Barbarella Barbie here. Um, it's actually quite fun, isn't it? Playing with dolls. <laughs> anyway. They would be um, bejeweled. They would be uh, looked after. Every morning, you would wake your idol up. Wake up, Barbie. Barbie, are you awake? She's awake. And you would feed her. And you would give her drinks. Because she is an idol. The idol and the god were entirely interchangeable. Now, in the Jewish temple, very similar. The whole of the cosmos was represented on the ceiling. This was like a mini representation of the cosmos. So this was the whole of the created order distilled into one little being. Sorry, into one little room. But in the middle of the Jewish temple, no idol, just empty space. But not just empty space. Instead, in the middle of the temple was a human being, the high priest. His garments even looked like the garments that the Near Eastern mythology would uh, de decorate their idols with. Because here then, this human being, this high priest, is the true idol of the one true God. God doesn't say in his top ten commandments, do not make idols because we don't need them. He says it because we've already got them. You already are one. Because post-Jesus and pre-fall, we are and we were all high priests, all God's idol, all an extension of him here on earth. When later in the chapter, God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, this is a direct polemic against and reference to the breathing ceremonies that the pagans would conduct for their silly little idols. Humanity was not created as God's plaything. Humanity was not created as God's servants even. Humanity certainly wasn't created to be an inevitable cosmic disappointment. Humanity, you, were created to manifest God himself. In and through. We're all made to share in the life of God. We are his extension here on earth. 
So what does that mean for us today? Well, it has huge implications for every single part of our life, particularly our identity. What do you actually believe about yourself? God thinks you're divine. This impacts everything about us, not just in relation to our faith and beliefs, but our bodies, what we do with them, our sexuality, our politics, our creativity, our rest, our play, our worship. God loves you more than anything else in the whole of his creation. Trees, sea, dogs couldn't care less in comparison to you. And you were created to do what he does. We were called to be this ecstatic embodiment of divine creativity, filling the whole world with the presence of God's glory. We were created to provide order and stability that God's own authority naturally entails. So it's not just about the creativity of artists and sculptors and painters and architects and musicians. We're talking about actually everyone. Of course, all of those are very important. But lawyers, for instance, can bring order to the world. Teachers form people. Soccer coaches help people thrive. Contractors create things out of nothing. Trash men restore beauty. Have you ever said or heard someone saying something like, I know I am made more for more than this? Genesis 1 says you're damn right you are. It's the first great commission to all mankind, to you, me, and everyone else, to make the image, glory, and likeness of God present across the earth by being who he made you to be. The mystery of it all is that God has made himself in some sovereign freedom sense actually dependent to some extent on you and me. That's the gracious humility of our omnipotent God. So the life well lived is the life that radiates God's character. To live fully is to actually live fully for him as fully ourselves. Not to be some identikit Christian who is like everyone else, but to be you. Not in a self-centered, arrogant way, but in an acceptance of just how wonderfully you have been made. Godly humility, despite what some people have said, is not self-flagellation. It's not, oh, I am so unworthy, God. I'm so terrible. I'm so awful. Woe is me. I am a slug. Surely you want to just cast me out forever and ever. Godly humility is an honest acceptance of our gifts and our weaknesses laid before the Lord saying, use me. I know that you want to. Because he does. We were having a conversation in our alpha group about what success was. And uh, someone was saying that they'd grown up with such a sort of um, uh, vociferous um, pushing of a kind of prosperity gospel thing that basically success in God's kingdom is very much like success in the worldly kingdom that if you're rich or famous, God loves you. If you're not, you're not. That it's been so hard for her to shape that at all that she doesn't really know what she's for at all. And we're having a sort of conversation back and forth about um, what well, is it just, you know, laying your life down before the Lord? Or what I want to suggest is it is that 
but without a sense in which we're giving up what is rightly ours through God's creation of us, who we are, our gifts and talents. No one else like you, you have unique purpose in this life. And success really is just about following the Spirit where he leads. He will lead you in different places to the person sitting next to you. But when we follow the Spirit, we are being successful. We might not know what comes as a result of that. We might end up planting a church here in Los Angeles when we were very happy in London. Thank you very much. (laughs) Or you might be on the red carpet. Or you might be someone who no one ever sees or knows, but you followed the Spirit and you were a success. It also has huge implications about how we treat other people. People don't just have dignity. Rather, how we treat other people is inextricable from our worship. Think about that. Proverbs 14 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy glorifies him. If everyone is a little extension of God, how I treat you is actually how I treat God. How I worship. C.S. Lewis said this, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may be one day a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Is that how we conduct ourselves when we're online talking with people? When we're walking down the street? Now, of course, this is not to say that humanity becomes the object of our worship. We are not supposed to worship anything other than the one true God. And we live in a town where it's always tempting to worship other people, isn't it? I remember famously... um, I was working on an ad, I used to work in advertising, and I was doing a shoot for Vodafone, which is like Verizon in the UK. And the face of Vodafone was a guy called David Beckham. Do you guys know who he is? Oh, you do? Okay. (laughs) So like, I don't know, like LeBron, but more famous. Uh, And I'd written this ad, it was the worst ad in the world. He was in a supermarket, and it was when picture messaging was just coming in, this is how old I am. And he was in a supermarket, and he checked a picture on his message. It was so bad. Anyway, he was in this, and at the time, it was like the height of his fame. There was no one more famous than him. But I said, because, you know, I'm cool, I will not be starstruck by him in any other way, in any way at all. In fact, probably won't even talk to him. It'll be fine. And he came, and he spent the first half of the day in his trailer, and I thought, so stuck up, you know. Not even seeing anyone. Second half of the day, he spent talking to every single person everyone, all the extras, all the security people. He was just the nicest man in the world. And at the end of the day, I looked at him, and we were just greeting, and I saw, and his face was radiated. He had the most amazing skin. (laughs) He had this beautiful skin, and I just said, could I touch your face? And before he answered, I just touched his face. Such a nice man. susceptible to worshipping other people, aren't we? (laughs) But the truth is, 
humanity, as we see at the beginning of Genesis, lives for the other, for the creator God. Now, this calling on us, and I'm going to end with this, is a demanding one. And of course, actually, the rest of the Old Testament is the story of one instance after another of humanity failing to live up to its divine calling. Adam fails, Abraham fails, the whole nation of Israel fails. Ultimately, the burden of the calling to incarnate God's presence in the end can actually only be borne by one man, the image of the invisible God. And because of him, we are set free. The idol is restored to us. We are God's priests yet again. But don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' calling relieves us of ours. Actually, on the contrary, it enables ours. He restores that true image of God to each one of us. He reconstitutes our idolhood, and we receive the life from his spirit flowing through us so that we might be the people that we sense we should be, that we could be, and that we will be. So, allow him to breathe his life into you once more. Wherever you are, whatever you're feeling, I feel like it is incredibly hot in this room. Is that just me? But allow yourself to have the pure water of his spirit reconstitute who you are. And allow him to send you forth in the power of his spirit to do the things you were created to do. It will look like no one else. In a minute, I'm just going to ask Ben and the band to play a song. And then, as always, we're going to pray for people at the end. But I just want to put a few things in your mind about what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you. The first two relate to how we have grown up. Have you been suffocated by control? You'll know if you have. Been put in a tight little box that you can't get out of. And all creativity, all freedom has been lost because you've told to be a good girl or a good boy or do this, do that. And it's stifled you. Or, opposing problem, have you just been left to figure it all out by yourself? And actually desperate for some guiding godly goodness to help you navigate this life because the chaos has become too much. Jesus is here to be the perfect guide, the perfect parent, the perfect way for you. Another thing to bear in mind, do you find it very difficult to believe that you're divine in any way? that there's no royal, godlike beauty to you. We all carry the messages that we have been told through the years. And they can be hard to shift. One of the biggest lies that children ever tell each other is that sticks and stones may break their bones, but words would never hurt them. No, words cause huge pain. We carry them with us our whole lives. Jesus is here to tell you that you are wonderful, that you are divine, that you are beautiful, that you are godlike, that you are the apex of his creation. 
hear the words of his love and his acceptance for you. It's what the whole Bible thing is all about. And finally, are you not sure what your calling is, but you want to be used? Would you like to be used in God's kingdom? Would you like to know what it is to try and follow the Holy Spirit? Would you like to know that your life means something, that you are fulfilling your calling? This only ever comes from the Spirit speaking to you. He's already speaking to you. He's speaking to you through the Bible. He's spoken to you through your parents. He's spoken to you through loved ones. He's spoken to those people who have had a positive impact on your life. He is speaking, and he wants to speak now because he doesn't want you just sitting there getting spiritually bored and fat. He wants you getting spiritually the opposite. Good, good. Let's sing a song, and then we'll pray for people.